Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation, I speak with Mark Gallagher, author, conference speaker, and managing director of Performance Insights, an organization that provides corporate clients with deep dive insights and executive coaching from the world of Formula One. His book, The Business of Winning, Insights in Transformation from F1 to the Boardroom, is a compelling insider's account of nearly 40 years in the Formula One industry, in which he explores what it takes to succeed in a competitive business with high technology, high finance, and immensely high stakes. Having joined the world of Formula One back in 1983, Mark's career includes more than a decade on the management board of the highly successful, race-winning Jordan Grand Prix team, running the world-famous Cosworth engine business and establishing the commercial arm of Red Bull Racing, which went on to become four times world champions. During his career, he has worked with many of the sport's leading drivers, including former world champions Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher and Jensen Button. Today, he works closely with a number of the sport's major stars, including David Coulthard, Mika Hakkinen and Jacques Villeneuve. Now, Mark may not seem like the most obvious guest to have on the show, But what's consistently struck me in our various conversations together is the power and potential that his industry holds in helping us to innovate, collaborate and imagine our way out of some of the most pressing issues of our time. And most crucially, how we can unhook ourselves from reliance on fossil fuels and decarbonise our energy industries. Mark, I'm very excited to have you in conversation again after what has been quite a while since we were last talking for the Kogan Page book launches of our respective books. Yes, exactly. That's one thing we have in common. We both managed to write a book with Kogan Page's uh, great help and support during that kind of initial stage of lockdown. So I'm uh, really happy to be on your podcast and to have this chance to chat with you. Thanks, likewise. And it's, it's probably, for my regular listeners, a bit of an unlikely pairing given your fascinating background in the world of Formula One and many other things. Um, So I want to start there, and I want to start with your book, which is called The Business of Winning, which is essentially a one-stop management guide for business leaders who want to explore how they can emulate the high-speed, high-impact approach to business that you have discovered and learned all about in the Formula One industry. So this probably seems like a bit of a strange conversation to be having, given the theme of this season's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, essentially looking at how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. But I was captivated by your talks and the book and the ways in which you've described how the Formula One industry is transforming its approach to becoming carbon neutral by 2030, which is perhaps a bit unexpected, and the impact this is having on the hearts and minds in broader society. Can we start there? What's going on with the whole carbon shift? So the whole carbon shift is, of course, driven 
internally in Formula One because we employ thousands of people and of course have hundreds of millions of fans around the world. And guess what? Everyone wants us to decarbonize. So our own people want us to decarbonize. I want my industry to decarbonize. So at a kind of individual level, there is this real interest in what can we do to contribute to this shift, which is absolutely essential that we do. And then there's the the kind of the parallel aspect from a business perspective, which is to be completely blunt, Natalie, you know, does Formula One as a sport and all those technology companies involved in it, do we want to survive and do we want to sustain our business? So sustainability in the broadest sense. And the answer is, well, we can only do that if we are contributing positively to society and to the communities that we serve. Because if we just continue being what is politely referred to by people as a bunch of petrol heads, <laughs> um, we're, we're not going to be around for that much longer. So there's really, it's, it's a combination of business imperative and then the desire of everyone involved in the sports community, which I inhabit. Mm. And it's interesting because when people talk about sports, we don't necessarily think about racing. But of course, so many millions of people and during the lockdowns, this was no different. Maybe we can talk about the virtual migration. But millions of people engage in virtual forms and physical forms of the sport, of F1, going to see the races or playing. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the potential here for the Formula One industry to really lead the change more broadly, perhaps thinking about sort of social narratives about what you can do to decarbonise an industry which previously has been full of, quote, petrol heads? It's like, what's the role of stewardship for F1, given that so many people are into it gosh how long have we got on your podcast to talk about <laughs> as this? long as you like <laughs> as long as i like well let me just take one example just prior to our recording of this uh, podcast is that this week on bbc question time you have sebastian vettel a german four times formula one world champion sitting there alongside politicians in the uk and he's the one talking about environmental sustainability mm. And saying one of the reasons why we have this profound crisis at the moment in not just in the United Kingdom, but across many countries in Europe around what's happened in the Ukraine, in Ukraine and with the Russian invasion and this whole question of energy and where's our energy come from and why does it cost so much? And you have Sebastian Vettel, a four times world champion, telling these politicians, well, of course, you have made the wrong decisions repeatedly over a number of years. You had a chance to get this right and you chose to keep on building pipelines to pipe oil from Russia and gas from Russia to sustain our complete reliance on fossil fuels. So in, so when you then zoom out and you say, what's Formula One's role? Well, one of the roles that we can have is that in 2021, Half a billion people watched at least one Formula One race on television. So that's quite a decent chunk of uh, the world's population. And it will come as no surprise to learn that most of those people come from developed countries. Um, So we would have huge audiences in Europe, in Asia Pacific, certainly in North America. Actually, Latin America is very strong. As well, so when we reach that size of audience, that means that we have a really important platform to talk about topics and then to 
help to put in place solutions. So this is why Sebastian Vettel, uh, our own seven times world champion, Lewis Hamilton, they're really campaigning for change within our industry, change on topics around diversity, uh, talk, uh, change around topics including environmental sustainability. And really, I find it fascinating that Sebastian will in response to Fiona Bruce's question, don't you feel a hypocrite driving a Formula One car and then talking about environmental sustainability? And he says, yes, of course I do. I'm a complete hypocrite. I literally, but we all are. You know, we fly in planes or we drive many, most of us drive cars or sit in cars. And he said, we, we all have these behaviours, which on, it doesn't take very much analysis to realise that we're all part of the problem. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? So we all have an individual uh, opportunity to make changes in our own lives and in, in what we do in our day-to-day uh, lives with our families, in our homes, with our recycling, with our use of finite resources, how we choose to travel. And then on a larger basis within the Formula One industry, we have these 10 Formula One teams packed full of incredibly bright engineers who are used to rapidly developing technology solutions we we like to do in formula one in weeks and months what it takes heavy industry to do in years or decades so therefore give us a challenge and we'll take it on and that's why this decade is so important to us because we think that formula one can in some ways demonstrate just what is possible if you really put your energy excuse the pun into decarbonization so as a result in less than four years time um so 46 months from now, the 2026 Formula One World Championship will feature cars that are not running on fossil that's fuel. That's so exciting. Um, and that's, that's not far away. And those technologies are in the pipeline. So we have quite an opportunity to play a role in communicating around these topics and then to putting in place some of the solutions that will hopefully benefit wider society. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, when you hear about the conversations happening between our quote-unquote leaders political folk coming up against and criticising those of us who have perhaps a more business-oriented impact. So, you know, if we're talking about people who are in the races or big companies that can make change, those folks have such a big opportunity to push the agenda forward where politicians just are simply failing. And I think the point that you made about um, Sebastian saying, well, yeah, of course, I'm a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. That is the starting point, right? It's an acknowledgement of the current frame saying the system is fucked. How do we acknowledge where we are and then figure out a way forward? Because unless you start by acknowledging the, the issues that we're all complicit in and stop throwing social grenades at people who are not the perfect role models, whether it's the vegan or um, the off-grid person, you know, whatever it is, if we can get away from that and start from a more realistic starting place, then I think people will feel more empowered to take those initial steps if you're saying to them well you're not perfect a lot of folks are just going to shrug and be like well what's the point in engaging in the first place yeah this is what you know you're kind of really giving me such an opportunity here to talk about things that I feel so passionate about because I know on previous uh, editions of your podcast uh, you've had guests who've talked about or quoted the climate scientist Michael Mann Mm. who I kind of follow religiously uh, for a very simple reason, which was uh, I am very fortunate to have a home in Australia. And uh, it was while I was in Australia a few years uh, back that uh, the country suffered its most devastating forest fires. And Michael happened to be in the country at the time. 
and was give, literally giving a running commentary on why Australia is at such a, so much at the forefront of facing these um, climate change issues. And of course, particularly heat related, you know, it's already a hot country um, in, in what might have been called normal times. And it's now truly abnormal. And when you sit in Australia, as I have done on Christmas Day in 42 degrees oh. centigrade, and you have your extended Australian family all saying, it never used to be like this when we were growing up in Australia in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So you have you don't need a lot of data. You're just talking to people who can, you know, human beings are the greatest sensors in the world. Mm. They provide all the data we need. So, you know, when you have people telling you this is our first-hand experience. So one of the points that Michael Mann has written about is that this notion that somewhere out there there's the perfect person who is doing all of the environmentally correct things, they're, they're vegan and they don't drive a car and they don't fly... It, it doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. The reality is all of us, more or less, are certainly living in our Western societies, are all guilty of uh, being part of a system which has chosen to just continue hoovering up what are finite resources. And it really even comes back to the fact that you can't open a business website or the Financial Times without reading, continuing to read about quarterly growth. Everything's about growth, yeah. growth, growth. How do businesses grow? How do we make more profitability? It all has to end somewhere. So we're all part of a system that is fundamentally broken in terms of what it's doing to the, the, the planet that we call home. So as a result, it needs this huge step change to take place. And I think that then coming back to the point around working in a sport like Formula One, it's maybe perhaps we feel so much in the firing line because we literally have spent 72 years burning fossil fuel, burning rubber, you know, burning, we, it looks like we burn the planet live on television every two weeks. And then as individuals who are fortunate enough to travel the world going to these events, the weird thing, as I've written in my book, is that we, we're perhaps seeing the change more than most because the many countries that I have gone to and visited during the course of my career I've seen the changes on the ground and it's devastating. So this is ultimately all comes back to the fact that, yes, we're not all perfect, but we can all play a role in hopefully putting together the solutions that will go some way towards solving this crisis, which is now absolutely upon us. Mm. Yeah, I was watching um, one of the most recent editions of what used to be Top Gear. What's it called now? Grand Tour. I don't oh, know, yes. Jeremy Clarkson yeah. and the boys. Anyway, yeah. and what was really interesting has been mapping how their discussion around cars has shifted in the last five to ten years. And also, I don't know if you saw it, it was um, Jeremy Clarkson had Clarkson's Farm. I watched, I binge watched it in one yeah. day, actually. <laughs> Me too, <laughs> during lockdown. And it was so interesting to see this kind of, I mean, he's quite a character, vilified and loved probably in equal measure. But to see the character of Jeremy Clarkson talk about and share a lot of this conflict that I think many of us experience in a personal way, but also in a social way, in a societal way. And to see the kind of the grappling, the reckoning that has to be done with the way that we live, the comforts that we've become accustomed to, and then the impact that that's having. And seeing people actually take stock kind of gives permission to the rest of us to say, oh, okay, well, they've been able to acknowledge something difficult, change their mind, and try to do things differently. 
And I think there's a particular power that comes from people like him, who's very popular in the broader culture, seeing someone's transformation, seeing their sort of emotional journey, and then realizing, well, or maybe it's okay for me to ask these questions as well, and kind of to direct that shift. It humanizes it somehow. Yeah, it does. And it's really interesting you talk about Jeremy Clarkson. Um, I I live in Chipping Norton, so he is... (laughs) His farm is about um, two miles from where I'm sitting at the moment. and. It's very topical because I know a lot of the people who live in his village and they've dealt with the huge numbers of people turning up to visit his farm <laughs> shop in the wake of uh, wake of his uh, show on Amazon. But it is interesting. And he, Jeremy's two years older than me. And so we're, we're petrol heads, dyed-in-the-wool petrol heads who have kind of grown <laughs> up at the same era through the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, those kind, that kind of generation that so many people point towards and say, all you did was consume resource. And, of course, people are right. And we didn't stop and think about it because it wasn't being raised as an issue. And I remember a few years back um, bothering at the end of a very busy year to add up how many flights I had taken. Mm. And it came to 178 <gasps> flights in a year. Wow. And I remember actually mentioning it in speeches and saying, so yes, we're very busy in Formula One. And for example, last year I took nearly 180 flights and and that was somehow kind of a badge of honour, just how hard you were charging around the globe. That's more than three a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And And now I look and I think, oh my goodness. I mean, really? It was ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And I, I know people who are still doing that level of travel in line of the, the work that they have chosen to do. And, and yet what, you know, if we can, if you think about what's happened in the last two and a half years and the, the, particularly the two crises that are on a lot of people's minds at the moment, the war in Europe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then, of course, the the global pandemic, and you look at the implications of those two catastrophes mm. on society and what that is doing in terms of recalibrating how we approach things like travel and climate change and work-life balance and where we work and where we choose to go to work. So I'll give you one example. Um, I was at the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne last month, and I was there because I'd been in Australia for four months, so I was tacking it on to the end of uh, visiting my family. And and, um, and when I turned up at the event in the press centre, there was no one. The press centre was empty. Wow. And this is a, an event with 400,000 spectators, but the media centre is empty. And I spoke to one of the few journalists there, and he said, no one comes to the races anymore. None of the media travel. Everyone now covers the sport from home. Wow. Uh, it happened because of the pandemic. And now as we are coming out of the pandemic, media companies are saying to their journalists, you don't need to travel all over the world to cover the race. The press conferences are all streamed live. Uh, the press officers provide all of the quotes from the sports people uh, on downloadable files on WhatsApp. So therefore, what's happening is that an entire community of international media have stopped traveling. And when you talk to them, they say, well, of course, I do kind of miss going to the events, but instead of going to 23 events a year, I'm going to go to four, and I'll go to four closer to home. And actually, I've got my life back because I get to spend the weekends with my family. 
this is a, a kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing happening, I think, in, in the world of business and industry as a result of the global pandemic. And then you throw into that the impact of the war in Europe and you suddenly have a Europe full of businesses and people who are saying, do I need to travel? Where is my energy source coming from? And in some ways, these two catastrophic events are somehow contributing towards us redefining how we live Mm. and actually at a time when we needed to do that anyway because of the climate crisis. Mm. I think, I mean, I agree. I think the thing that's so heartbreaking is that so many lives are lost for so many more of us to just wake up and be like, okay, this is this is enough now. I think the other thing as well from a behavioural science perspective is knowing about these things and knowing that for also, you know, I share your, your experience for many years, busyness and travel were signs of success and of fulfilling some sort of idea about what achievement looks like. And it, and it is exciting to travel. There's also that very real part, going to yeah. places, yeah. having the adventure, meeting new people, being in a specific environment with a common purpose with other people. Like, there's a lot of beauty to that. But of course, the dark side is the impact that it's having on the wider world. But I think there's this, yeah. it's kind of this question of how do we reckon with our human tendencies to get carried away with almost like the hedonistic side of life and yes. deferring the externalities, deferring the pain, the cost, the risk, and finding ways to be more responsible. And I think these crises that you've just mentioned, unfortunately, they've served for many people as just that, as an actual tangible, inescapable sign of this is what's happening. You need to pull your fingers out now. Let's do something differently. Yeah, no question about it. And, and it is tragic. Hmm. And one of the things I talk about in keynote speeches I I deliver is how my sport has been through 20 years of profound change. And one of the takeaways that I always used to leave audiences with is that our experience is it takes an existential crisis to force change. We all are happy to sit on our hands and be complacent and hope that everything's going to stay as it is. And then you get that existential crisis and everyone runs around with their hair on fire and then the clever people then sit down and work out solutions. And then you come out the other side and you look back and you think, why didn't we do all of this before? Mm. Why didn't we stop pumping oil from Russia before or gas from Russia? Why are a team of 800 journalists flying to 23 Formula One races all over the world to sit in a room in a press conference and watch television screens. They could do. They could have been doing all of that from home years ago. And indeed, in the wider world of business, why have been people been charging around the globe having meetings when we now know you can, you can have that half an hour chat with your customer on on um, Teams or Zoom or, or whatever. So there, there's all of this change is taking place. And you know, from a Formula One perspective, I think Natalie, the thing which gives me a lot of hope is that I, I've spent my entire life working in a sport where we we set about trying to tackle quite profound technology challenges mm. and we bring smart people together and we, we deliver a solution. And quite often we deliver the solution when we didn't quite know how we were going to do that at the beginning of the journey. So we have an ambitious target. We don't quite know how we're going to get there. Well, it's very much like that with decarbonisation. Um, People say, of course, you have the no-hopers. The people say it's too late. We'll never achieve it. 
climate change is going to run away and you know we've left it too late the kind of the doom mongers they are as problematic i feel as those who deny that there's climate change mm-hmm. because if we all just simply give up there's you know we're, we're going to get nowhere with this my experience in formula one is you get, you have a group of engineers who look at a particular problem and they start looking at where can we draw ideas and creativity and innovation from and quite often it comes from outside our industry so we're very good at integrating technology solutions that come from other sectors other areas of research and development and then we come up with a really powerful solution which is one of the reasons people will forever say to me oh formula one is so innovative yes we are (laughs) that's what we do innovation is at the center of our our technology. So in this decade, where we're going to abandon the use of fossil fuel and decarbonize all of our teams, all of our travel, all of our logistics, and every Formula One event will be decarbonized to achieve this net zero carbon emission target by 2030. It's real, it's meaningful, and it's measurable. Do we know all of the solutions? Absolutely not. We're in 2022, we have eight years left, but we have a fair idea of the direction of travel. And I think probably for me, the only impediment to us achieving our objectives in terms of decarbonisation in the sport is that some of the players may not be honest players on this journey. And in the last couple of years, we've had major investment come into Formula One from Saudi Arabia. Uh, Aramco have become a, a major sponsor of Formula One. And the Saudi Arabian authorities maintain that they are serious about a decarbonized future. And it's hard to believe that, quite honestly, because they currently sit on a sea of oil, which they continue pumping. And we know that during the current crisis in Europe with the conflict in Ukraine, we know that the Saudis have been able to open the taps even more and pump even more oil in the last uh, few months. So there's going to have to be a lot of proof in the pudding. And this is why the the measuring of what we're achieving is so important, because unless you can measure the results, there's no point in people issuing grandiose press statements saying we're going to decarbonize. We've got to see the proof of the pudding and we've got to see what comes out the other side. And certainly I'm, I'm hopeful that certainly within my industry, we can develop solutions which will be applicable to wider mobility, wider transport, aviation, marine, shipping, road transportation. And if we can help in some way on that decarbonisation journey, I think it'll be possibly one of Formula One's most important contributions to uh, to wider society. Mm. And especially having access to so many people who are so skilled and driven and talented who are probably throwing their weight behind something they believe in. You know, if it's a decarbonisation mission with a very specific, quite short time horizon then, you know, the incentives are very high and very immediate in terms of getting that, getting that right, finding solutions that you can then share with the wider community. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly it. So in, in 2010, we decided to stop making large internal combustion engines in Formula One and to actually start making very small ones and make them to lithium batteries and use regenerative energy techniques to to store energy in the batteries and the objective was to reduce our fuel consumption by 40 percent and still have the same performance and I remember presenting that target to a group of engineers who worked with me at the time 
And they were all shaking their heads saying, <laughs> it's impossible. How can we possibly achieve the same performance with a 40% reduction in the energy that's available to us? And yet, four years later, everyone rolled out that technology. It was there in four years. So I love the fact that you've got to be ambitious about your goal. And there could be no more unambitious goal than to say that the way the world has lived off the back of fossil fuel revolution for the last 150 years what that's done through the 20th century and into this century, that now needs to completely change and be put behind us. And a little bit like the coronavirus lessons, we are going to realise in the fullness of time that all the solutions were already available to us. They are available to us. So it's just a question of actually not waiting for our political leaders, because our political leaders will take far too long to do what's necessary. And not all of them are honest travellers on this uh, anyway. Mm. It's actually much more to do with businesses, business leaders, entrepreneurs. It's to do with communities. And that's going to drive the success. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think there are lots of ambitious, clever, smart people out there who will see opportunity in this crisis to deliver the solutions. Mm. And I think a lot of it also, hearing you speak, is about unleashing the imagination of people who, you know, if you say, OK, this is an impossible problem. Great. Some people are going to leap at that and go, well, let's make it possible. What have we got? Um, it reminds me of a, a lot of the work by Rob Hopkins, who talks about being able to infuse people with possibility and get people to connect with our creative capacities as a collective, as communities, to come together and imagine something different. But I'd like to talk about some of the exciting breakthroughs, some of the tech breakthroughs that you've witnessed that you're most excited about, that yeah. you think could have the widest or maybe very specific knock-on effects to other industries. What have you seen that really ignites you? I was speaking at a conference yesterday when someone asked me, you know, in my 35 years in the industry, what's been the one thing that's really, that I feel has benefited society? Mm. And there's no question, it's our contribution to, to road safety. Huh. And it's a kind of unexpected outcome. But we had, I had the privilege of meeting and briefly working with Ayrton Senna, who was a three times Formula One world champion, and he was killed on May the 1st, 1994. And the day before that, a friend of mine was killed in qualifying at that race. So we lost two of our colleagues in one weekend. And that weekend led to a seismic change in the way that Formula One approached the safety of car design. And that led to an investment in technologies that will protect the passengers and or the, the occupants in the event of a, a high energy impact. So as a result of that, Formula One developed front and rear crash structures, side impact protection, and then exported that technology into the European car manufacturers through the European New Car Approval Programme. And people very seldom do stop to think, but when you get into your car today and you see airbags and you notice that your car has side impact protection, and no one would think for one second that you can draw a direct line from that to the death of Ayrton mm -hmm. Senna in a Grand Prix in Italy in 1994. And yet it was Formula One, it was Formula One's governing body, the FIA, that worked with the Department of Transport and the European Union to completely change how road cars are manufactured and designed from a safety point of view. And that European program has now rolled out globally. So there's now a global new car approval program. And you have car manufacturers lining up who want to achieve a five-star rating in terms of vehicle safety. And that's come from that's come from the world of Formula One. So that's a very good outcome because we have five thousand people killed on the roads mm. of the world every day. 
I mean, it's a, it's an extraordinary. It's, a, it's more than a nine eleven every day, and that's something that needs to 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 be ended. So again, it's all about that's about a catastrophic loss of human life. And in the case of Formula One, we feel that that should be zero. We should be able to end that if we have the right technologies uh, in place. So that's been my past experience. And then looking to the future, I have no doubt that what I see going on in my sport at the moment, where we're developing synthetic fuels, which will be produced by drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. So the carbon that has gone into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels will be pulled out of the atmosphere Uh, turned back into a hydrocarbon, but it'll be a synthetic hydrocarbon. It will not add to the stock of CO2 in the upper atmosphere. And it actually is in a really important technology because it's going to help industries such as shipping and aviation to stop using fossil fuels. And I'm a kind of realist. I feel that the solution to the climate change problem is going to be multifaceted. There's not going to be one solution to fix everything. It's going to require a quite complex portfolio of solutions in terms of the energy we use for our homes or for our businesses, for our transport. Um, I also really feel that um, it's it's easy to criticise individual solutions. As we know, the world of the car industry is, is charging down the path of uh, you know battery-powered electric vehicles. And that is one solution. It's a solution which draws some criticisms. But my feeling is that given where we were 15 years ago, it's amazing to see the shift that has occurred. And uh, like him or loathe him, you know, Elon Musk has played quite a significant role in, in driving some of that change and doing things which the car industry at large used to think was impossible. So we're, we're seeing lots of different uh, solutions coming into play. But from a Formula One perspective, I think that the thing that really excites me is this uh, this notion that we can find new ways to create sustainable energy sources. And actually, if we're pulling carbon out of the oceans or pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, clearly that's a really um, significant step in the right direction. I'm curious how that works. Like, are you are you at liberty to talk about a little bit how that works? Or yeah, I mean it, it's. <laughs> The easiest way to pull carbon out of the atmosphere is to, is to take it out of the oceans. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, acidification of oceans is a problem. The oceans soak up a vast amount of uh, the carbon dioxide that we, we pump into the atmosphere. And we all know, again, with my Australian hat on, so to speak, we know about what's happening with um, the oceans around the coast of Australia and the damage has been caused to the reefs, etc. So you can literally pump seawater and draw from that the carbon dioxide that's been absorbed. It's a complex process. It requires a lot of energy. So this is one of the conundrums. It requires a great deal of energy to do this, to pull the carbon out. But you take a company like Porsche, German sports car manufacturer. So in partnership with Siemens and the Chilean government, they have built a refinery on the coast of Chile. The refinery is powered entirely by wind turbines. So it's, its source of energy is wind. That's why it's in Chile. They have chosen... The, one of the windiest coastlines in the world. And that um, refinery in the next two years will be producing 600 million litres of synthetic fuel from pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, starting with the ocean. Wow. And that's being done. Why? It's being done because Volkswagen Audi Group, Porsche being one of their brands, 
realize that the problem, when people say the internal combustion engine is a problem, what they actually mean is the fossil fuel that we put into an internal Mm. combustion engine is the problem and what comes out of the tailpipe. Our point is that we need to stop pumping fossil fuel. We need to find alternate energy sources. Now, you can can create biofuel and you can create biofuel from bio-waste, but this ambitious objective of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is one that really appeals because it's quite frankly vast quantities of it available. It is a it is an energy hungry process and that's why there's a conundrum. Where does the energy come from to, to do what you're trying to do? Um, and obviously you're also com- you're taking that carbon and you're combining it with hydrogen. And again you need a lot of energy for the process of electrolysis where you can combine that carbon with the hydrogen and turn it back into a hydrocarbon. So you've got quite a lot uh, of technical challenges, but where there's a a will, there's a way. And Porsche and Siemens and the Chilean government have come up with this very neat solution. And Porsche have this as a central strategy for the future in parallel to electric vehicles. Now, of course, then the aviation industry is fascinated because you can run jet engines and you can run uh, internal combustion engines and aircraft also on this fuel. So the Royal Air Force had their first flight using this fuel, developed by a Formula One engineer, uh, at the end of 2021. So it's already in in use, and it's at that kind of stage of being trialled and tested, but it offers a great potential as part of the solution as to how society stops pumping fossil fuels. That's extraordinarily uplifting. I think especially as as an example of one of the things that we can do as part of a tapestry of other things. I was listening yeah. to a podcast with Amanda Scott called Accidental Gods, and they were talking about methane and mm. the use of biogas runoff from um, slurry from dairy farms uh, and what would need to happen in order for that to become one of these portfolio uh, fuels that you can use to power trucks, for instance, or a community around a dairy farm within a particular radius. And it's so interesting to hear these things because obviously the issue with electric cars is that the lithium that we need for the batteries and all the other rare earth materials that we need, they're finite as well. And you're ending up with these horrendous knock-on effects in Bolivia and beyond of open mines, which are then polluting local communities, waterways, you know, ecosystems. So it's kind of, it's got to be a holistic approach. And these systems have to be met with equal levels of complexity in terms of solution, I think, which is kind of going back to that question of, you know, can you create a solution with the same mindset that caused the problem? And of course, the answer is no. So we can't think in linear terms. It has to be a lot more networked um, when we're thinking about these things. Yeah. So if I was going to ask you about the systemic transformation you most long for, what does that conjure for you? What, what does that bring to mind? I would like in my lifetime, um, and we're talking about probably in the next 25 years, I would like in the next 25 years to see the wider industry that I'm involved in. So if you take motorsport as, a, as part of the automotive industry, uh, because essentially it's been used to market all of these amazing brands and uh, of course we've worked very closely with the energy sector over the years ferrari have been sponsored by shell mm. since the 1950s and you know the renault form renault's formula one team has a big partnership with bp etc i what i would like to see in the balance of my life is this whole industry to shift away from its reliance on fossil fuels and whenever i mean you just mentioned the the challenges around battery electric vehicles and I've listened to people on podcasts talking about this and kind of 
poo-pooing electric vehicles because they say, well, there's the, bat- the battery issue in lithium and rare earth materials. And I completely get that. And my question back is, what would you rather us do? Mm. Because the alternative is society will just keep pumping fossil fuel. So battery electric vehicles offer a stepping stone on a path towards the ultimate goal, which is that we have a mobility which requires no fossil fuels to be used and is is using renewable sources. So it's offering a short-term fix. It's rather like the drug addict who has to come off you know, the drugs they're buying on the side of the street and they go on to a synthetic drug and then they wean themselves off. We're trying to wean people away from pumping fuel Mm. and battery electric vehicles enable you to do that. And there's a lot about battery electric vehicles in terms of misinformation, because I know from talking to major car manufacturers that, that this notion that they're just throwing batteries in these cars, they don't care about the rare earth materials or where the lithium comes from or who's mining it, that is complete and utter nonsense. And again, it actually is being quite often shared by people who say they are you know, in favour of environmental technology. So they're kind of criticising part of the solutions. There's a lot of... My experience of working with these companies is that they're packed full of people like you and I who want to see the change. Mm. They completely buy into it. So at the present time, you cannot easily power all of the cars in the world by hydrogen. Everyone in the industry knows that hydrogen is ultimately where we need to end up with. So hydrogen fuel cell technology is extremely exciting. But at the moment... It's immature technology. It's not widely available. It's highly expensive to create. There's lots of packaging and other issues to do with it, storage uh, issues. So at the moment, electric vehicles are a, a stepping stone. So from my point of view, what I think I w- will see over the, say, the balance of my life is ultimately that shift to a world of mobility where hydrogen will be the central source of energy for mobility, be that aviation, be that marine transport, be that road transportation. And I have complete confidence that the technologists who work within Formula One are going to develop some of the solutions that contribute to that. So that's that's my that's my big hope for the immediate future. I love that. And also naming it as a stepping stone. I think this is the thing. It's it's um there there are very few perfect solutions. Uh, and so we can't just as much as I think some people would love this to be be the case, we can't just hit pause it's very unlikely that that the world would that economies would survive and i know that economies people talk about money being a construct and it is but in an era in which we have very little access to our own land very few people grow their own food anymore economies coming to a halt in tangible terms means people losing their lives and their homes and Correct. their food Correct. and so there's this often this kind of very romanticized or idealized let's say ideal of let's just hit pause and just pull the plug. And of course, that's also something which is not possible and could be extremely damaging. Yeah, it's not going, it's not going to happen. Mm. And that's, you know, and I, again, I think that because I've traveled, you know, I, since I got back from Australia, I've been to the United States. We had a Grand Prix in Miami and I was then invited uh, by Mexico's top 60 technology companies to go and speak at a conference with them. And, you know, once you step over that border from the United States into Mexico and you start seeing the societal challenges that they face, mm. deep, profound, significant, existential challenges, you know, the drug tr- drug trade, which, of course, is infamous. But there's so many deep societal problems. 
you stop the average Mexican and you start talking about climate change. I mean, it's it's that's number seventy three mm. on their list of priorities. It's just not there. So the reality is, it's very it's all very well being worthy about what we need to do. Actually, what we need to do is to, to develop solutions, to solutions that can be offered on an affordable basis to people all over all over the planet. And if I was to give you one example of where I feel, again, my industry has shown a capability which is there to be tapped into. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, um, the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team was challenged by, well, was invited by University College London to develop a breathing aid to help treat patients. And they, they they took a 1960s, uh, CPAP machine, a con- continuous positive airway pressure breathing aid. Uh, the designs for the this device didn't exist, so no one had the original designs for it. So the, the team reverse engineered it, improved the design, and produced the first prototype in 100 hours, delivered it to the hospital, was working on a patient yeah, literally within two weeks. They then subsequently delivered 10,000 units to the NHS, they then provided all the designs in an open source basis online to healthcare organisations around the planet who were then able to download those designs and manufacture them locally. And I think the last time I looked, over 90 countries wow. had benefited from that. And when I meet those engineers, at Mercedes, these are Lewis Hamilton's engineers. When you meet those engineers and you say, tell me about that project, and they will say, well, you know, we have enjoyed working in Formula One and winning eight world championship titles actually the most satisfying thing we've ever, we've ever done is to help develop the technologies to save people's lives during the coronavirus pandemic. And this is why I say whenever people present us with a, a technology challenge, we not only love taking on an ambitious challenge, but we love rapidly prototyping a solution, mm. bringing it to market and providing it as an opportunity for someone else to scale. So this is, this is why I believe actually the decarbonisation uh, challenge that we now face is, is a perfect one for us because if we can do it in Formula One with our research and development centric approach to to problem solving with all of these bright people working together, we will then hand that over to wider industry and I believe that's why it will play an important role in, in contributing to some of the solutions that need to be put in place. That's such an inspiring story and at the heart of that the uh, the collaborative spirit within which that was conducted you know the fact that you can share I think that's another thing as well it's you know it's one of the things that we've not really touched on as much here but is the culture of innovation within (laughs) the the organization of Formula One like you cannot innovate without a team that has a high level of psychological safety openness to experience that are willing to kind of put themselves on the line and for one another can you speak maybe briefly about that the qualities that you most admire before we wrap up I am so pleased that you pulled that iron out of the fire just before we finish our podcast because that's what it's all about and I think when I look at the chaos in around the world in terms of our political classes and uh, the media commentary on so much that's going on in the world again I take heart from the fact that I work in an industry where people people problem solve together they work together as a team they have complete alignment you know wouldn't it be great if countries were fully aligned behind common goals if, if we all had set a central purpose that we focused on. I mean, we could do anything. Mm. And actually, we have been able to do anything because when the coronavirus pandemic 
started, people said, oh, it'll be years before we, we find a vaccine. And then, and then, goodness knows, here we are two years later and everyone is, you know, double or triple vaccinated who wants to be. And it, certainly in developed countries, and I appreciate that the whole of the world doesn't have that benefit, but, you know, the coronavirus pandemic showed what happens when everyone pulls in the same direction, more, more or less pulls in the same direction. Well, in Formula One, that's what we focus on. We want ambitious goals where you have a team of people who who of course argue and debate the strategy how are we going to tackle this but once they have the strategy agreed they all unify on that on that road towards delivering the technology solution and the performance and whatever that we set out to achieve and that psychological safety aspect is so critical because you can speak up and speak out and be heard you can you can make a mistake and be open and honest about it. And rather than being shot down, people will say, well, what can we learn from that? So it's a learning environment. And that's what's so powerful about working in sport generally. So everyone knows that sport is all, you know, success, success in sport uh, where you have outside of individual sports is, is about teamwork. And it's about that, that combination, collaboration and the way that people ultimately complement one another what is interesting then about formula one is you take all of that teamwork which everyone understands from the world of sport and you combine it with uh, a huge amount of technological complexity and so it's people and technology working in harmony to achieve ambitious goals and that's what is such that's why it's such a satisfying environment to work in and again really to conclude that's why I'm very hopeful about the future because if we future because if we can get smart teams of people working together collaboratively with the best technology that's available and taking some risks and being creative and innovative and trying new things and questioning established ways of doing things I think we will get we can get there um, so really the one thing I one thing I just hope is that our business leaders push to do that our political leaders aren't going to make it happen. Mm. But the world of business, I believe, can. And they'll take the lead. Yeah. Mm. That's such an inspiring note uh, to explore. So then a few final questions for you before I let you go. Is there a quote or a story that you hold in the back of your mind that kind of inspires you or maybe a person when you think about what's possible or particularly hard challenges? Yeah, I had the privilege of working with Michael Schumacher and getting to know him and he was a seven times Formula One world champion and he was a very inspiring person, is a very inspiring person. Sadly he suffered a life-changing brain injury from which he he will never recover. But Michael talked to me on one occasion about the desire to get out of bed every morning and improve whatever you're doing that day to just for you to live your life on a journey of continuous improvement. And this is, this is someone who never studied Six Sigma. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is someone who you know, hasn't, got, hasn't done an MBA. He just knows this is a sports person. He wants to be a better version of himself every day. So he talked to me about finding your passion, finding your, the thing that motivates you in life, following that path, being relentless in your quest to be the best at what you do. And I honestly say there's, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about. Uh, that mantra that he shared with me, or that those those words that he shared with me, because he did it in his career, and he became the best the world had ever seen, and he's still regarded as a an icon and a benchmark in our 
industry and he did that both in the sport and outside the sport you know he built schools in africa he was the largest private contributor to the tsunami oh. in uh, in asia when it occurred so he he lived the things that mattered to him every day which is why it's such a tragedy what subsequently occurred in his life but but for him, for me he was really quite a an inspirational person to work with and it's that combination of relentless quest to fulfill our dreams our ambitions our motivations and get out of bed every morning and and keep on that path and make your life worth living and hopefully create a legacy that means the world is left a, a better place for it and i usually ask at this point some version of how you orient towards hope on dark days I don't know if that feels maybe connected to the answer you just gave, but yeah, I mean, how do you orient towards hope? I I grew up in a highly conflicted society in Belfast in Northern Ireland in the nineteen sixties, seventies, and nineteen eighties. Saw some dreadful things as a child, uh, pretty appalling things. And I now look at the career that I've had and I look back and I think I went on a journey and it it was a journey of hope. I hoped that I would achieve the things that I dreamt about as a as a, a young young guy and went on to achieve many of them. And it gives me hope for the future that whatever whatever the challenges that face people, you have to have hope. And there I, I'm not someone who subscribes to the notion that, you know, you can do whatever you want to. I know that's not possible for everyone. But the fact is that there has there, there has to be a hope out there. And, I mean, today as I'm talking to you, I think about the challenges that face me and my family and my community and the society I live in over the years ahead. And I draw a huge amount of hope from everything I've seen in my life to date that the future is going to be better. And we can all get dragged down by the news narrative that we listen to on social media or, uh, you know, watch on whatever we're streaming. But actually, the world has always been a challenging place. There's never been a moment in time where everything has been mm. great and wonderful and perfect. We're just living in another moment of crisis and challenge. But ultimately, we are on a trajectory which takes us to to a better society. And I, I'm therefore ever hopeful that we'll just continue on that. And that's why when it comes to something like climate change and environmental sustainability... I'm very hopeful because I, I really do believe that we have it within us to find solutions and to protect this place we call home. Beautiful. Mark, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about your wonderful work and your book, where's the best place to find you? Well, I have my website, which is mark-gallagher.com. Um, I have my book through Kogan Page, which uh, you can find on the Kogan Page uh, website, koganpage.com, and just put my name, Mark Gallagher, in there and my book will come up. And uh, I'm always very happy to engage with any of you who uh, reach out to me on social media. Mark, thank you so much. That was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. 
My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.